Welcome to the North Main Podcast, a production of North Main Street Church of God in Butler, Pennsylvania. This podcast brings you North Main's messages every week. We strive to know God intimately, grow in Christ continually, and go for Him daily. I invite you to listen in today as we explore the Bible and learn about its unchanging truths for living life God's way. Let's listen in to this week's message. We start a new series this week. Oh, hang on, there's a video. It means the absence of war. And in the Bible, the word peace can refer to the absence of conflict, but it also points to the presence of something better in its place. In the Old Testament, the Hebrew word for peace is shalom. And in the New Testament, the Greek word is erene. The most basic meaning of shalom is complete or whole. The word can refer to a stone that has a perfect whole shape with no cracks. It can also refer to a completed stone wall that has no gaps and no missing bricks. Shalom refers to something that's complex with lots of pieces that's in a state of completeness, wholeness. It's like Job who says his tents are in a state of shalom because he counted his flock and no animals are missing. This is why shalom can refer to a person's well-being. Like when David visited his brothers on the battlefield, he asked about their shalom. The core idea is that life is complex, full of moving parts and relationships and situations. And when any of these is out of alignment or missing, your shalom breaks down. Life is no longer whole. It needs to be restored. In fact, that's the basic meaning of shalom when you use it as a verb. To bring shalom literally means to make complete or restore. So Solomon brings shalom to the unfinished temple when he completes it. Or if your animal accidentally damages your neighbor's field, you shalom them by giving them a complete repayment for their loss. You take what's missing and you restore it to wholeness. The same goes for human relationships. In the book of Proverbs, to reconcile and heal a broken relationship is to bring shalom. And when rival kingdoms make shalom in the Bible, it doesn't just mean they stop fighting. It also means they start working together for each other's benefit. This state of shalom is what Israel's kings were supposed to cultivate, and it rarely happened. So the prophet Isaiah, he looked forward to a future king, a prince of shalom. And his reign would bring shalom with no end. A time when God would make a covenant of shalom with his people and make right all wrongs and heal all that's been broken. This is why Jesus' birth in the New Testament was announced as the arrival of Irene. Remember, that's the Greek word for peace. Jesus came to offer his peace to others, like when he said to his followers, My peace I give to you all. The apostles claimed that Jesus made peace between messed up humans and God when he died and rose from the dead. The idea is that he restored to wholeness the broken relationship between humans and their creator. This is why the Apostle Paul can say Jesus himself is our Irene. He was the whole complete human that I am made to be but have failed to be. And now he gives me his life as a gift. And this means that Jesus' followers are now called to create peace. Paul instructed local churches to keep their unity through the bond of peace, which requires humility and patience and bearing with others in love. Becoming people of peace means participating in the life of Jesus, who reconciled all things in heaven on earth, restoring peace through his death and resurrection. So peace takes a lot of work because it's not just the absence of conflict. True peace requires taking what's broken and restoring it to wholeness, whether it's in our lives, our relationships, or in our world. And that's the rich biblical concept of peace. Now, there were three kings that started off this kingdom, if you will, called Israel. 
Prior to that, they had judges that would rule the land and impart justice that were the military leaders. But the Israelites in 1 Samuel chapter 8 wanted a king like the other nations around them. And so God consented and allowed them to have kings, but gave them the warning that their kings would actually make their children become slaves. He would take from them from the bounty of their own harvests and force their sons into military service. So Saul becomes the first king of Israel. Then David follows him. And then Solomon, David's son, follows him. And then after Solomon's death, and after a period of peace, there would be a breakdown. There would be a civil war, if you will, and a split between the northern and the southern tribes. And so then we would have a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom. Over a period of a few hundred years, the northern kingdom would have its own set of kings, the northern kingdom known as Israel or Ephraim, depending on the version of scripture you're looking at, oftentimes used synonymously. And then the southern kingdom, Judah, comprised typically of Judah, a little bit of Simeon, and a small slice of Benjamin. Between the 20 kings of the northern kingdom and the 20 kings, give or take, of the southern kingdom, only eight kings out of those 40 would be decent enough to be called good kings. And all of those eight came from the southern kingdom, Judah. Of those eight, only three of those eight would bring revival to the land by tearing down the altars of all the pagan gods that had found their way into the holy places of Yahweh. And even those three kings were not great who brought revival into the land, but they were decent enough and good enough to point the people back to the law of God, which directed them to God himself. And Isaiah in the Old Testament tells us of this coming Messiah 800 years before Jesus would be born. We get this perfect picture of what a Messiah is going to look like through the writer of Isaiah. He says he will be a wonderful counselor. Actually, he will be the mighty God, the everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace, the Prince of in Hebrew, shalom. And shalom, peace, when Hebrews, or excuse me, when Jewish people meet today, especially Orthodox Jews, they will say shalom, and the greeting would be shalom. And it's more than just not wishing there would be no war, but rather it's wishing wholeness, as we saw in the video. I wish you more than just blessing. I wish you wholeness and perfectness. I wish that you were complete in all ways and at all times. This is the meaning of peace. Again, he mentioned in the Greek, it's called Irene. This prince of peace we would come to know as Jesus Christ. He would be the embodiment of peace the embodiment of hope, the embodiment of love, the very person of God in the flesh. Jesus would be our shalom. 
Because it's only through him that wholeness and completeness can come. And this is what the Jewish people for centuries and millennia had waited on up to the time of Christ's arrival. And yet John tells us that we didn't recognize him. Even Isaiah says his appearance wasn't much that we would look upon him as somebody of significance. And so as we come into this new series today, as we talk about what the kingdom of peace really is, we have to explore the kingdom of peace this Resurrection Sunday from the perspective of the coming Messiah who would be Jesus Christ and who would take away the sins of the world and it would be through him that we would have peace and hope everlasting. So Isaiah chapter, and it seems odd to go not to one of the gospels, but rather to the prophet Isaiah for an Easter Sunday message. But we're looking at Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 through 7, and then in a little bit we're going to switch all the way to chapter 53 and look at verses 1 through 12. Listen to what Isaiah says 800 years before Jesus is born. He's basically telling the Jewish people who are under a great amount of duress that there are outside opposing forces, the Assyrians and eventually the Babylonians, who are going to come in as the hand of judgment from God to punish the people who have become laxed and idolatrous and even adulterous, if you will, in their own belief in Yahweh, the one who parted the sea to bring them across onto dry land, the one who parted the Jordan River to bring them into the promised land, the one who cleared out the people ahead of them, the one who helped them to conquer this land of giants. They've now turned their backs on him and begun to worship things of the secular culture and other pagan cultures. It sounds nothing like today. We live in a pure country with no idolatrous behavior at all, I even got scolded this past week for even mentioning Cardi B in my last sermon. And if you didn't hear it, good luck, all right? I should be more concerned about the health of our people than I am about the cultural situation where Cardi B celebrated over God. Dare I mention Satan's shoes? Isaiah 9, 1 through 7. Yeah, thank you. I appreciate that. The Isaiah, Isaiah the prophet, listen up. Thank you. Isaiah the prophet, honestly, was living at a time not much unlike our own. I read Jeremiah and Isaiah now, and my heart breaks. I weep. I'm serious. Guys, ladies, listen up. If you've never read the Bible in your life, could you go back and do this for me over this next month? Read Jeremiah and Isaiah. Read Jeremiah and Isaiah. When Jeremiah is a prophet and when Isaiah are prophets over the land, Jeremiah and Isaiah, they prophesy over the problem that's happening within the culture of Israel. Because not only have they turned their backs on God, they've begun to worship other things and other beings and other creatures and other idols which are not even real. They begin to worship stuff. They've become prosperous. They, they, they've lived for, for a long time 
as rich and wealthy people. And God is saying, I've contended with you long enough. And now my anger has reached its peak with you. And judgment is coming. Judgment is coming. This is not a great Easter sermon, is it, so far? I will work on that. We'll get there. Isaiah chapter 9. This was a condition of the culture 800 years before Christ. And Isaiah writes, the time of darkness and despair that's coming because God's judgment is about to be poured out on you will not go on forever. The land of Zebulun and Naphtali will be humbled. But there will be a time in the future when the Galilee of the Gentiles, which lies along the road that runs between the Jordan and the sea, will be filled with glory. 800 years before Jesus. Where's Jesus? He was born in Bethlehem, but where did he grow up? In the region called Galilee, in a town called Nazareth. Jesus of Nazareth. Nazareth is one of the cities in the region of Galilee during Jesus' time. And 800 years prior to Isaiah's writing, there will be a time in the future when Galilee of the Gentiles, which lies along the road that runs between the Jordan and the sea, will be what? Filled with glory. Okay, let's continue. The people who walk in darkness will see a great light. For those who live in a land of deep darkness, a light will shine. You will enlarge the nation of Israel and its people will rejoice. They will rejoice before you as a people rejoice at the harvest and like warriors dividing the plunder. For you will break the yoke of their slavery and lift the heavy burden from their shoulders. You will break the oppressor's rod just as you did when you destroyed the army of Midian. The boots of the warrior and the uniforms blood stained by war will be burned. They will be fuel for the fire. For a child is born to us. A son is given. The government will rest on his shoulders. And he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and the Prince of Shalom. His government and its peace will never end. He will rule with fairness and justice from the throne of his ancestor David for all eternity. The passionate commitment of the Lord of heaven's armies will make this happen. Now, you can read more and more. There's a ton of other imagery as you continue through each of the chapters about this coming Messiah that will set the captives free. This coming judgment that is coming because of God's displeasure with the Israelites. But then a hope that the darkness and the judgment won't last forever. Because there's coming a day when a Messiah will come, this Prince of Peace, who will set the captives free. Chapter 53, we flash all the way forward. And then Isaiah asks this question of the people of God. Who has believed our message who has believed the prophet's message? The prophets of God who speak on behalf of God. Who's believed their message? Who? He's asking. It's a rhetorical question. Because you know in Isaiah's day, 
they rejected their prophets. They crucified, well, not crucified, they slaughtered their prophets. They ran them through with swords. They beheaded them. They cut them in half. It's believed that Isaiah himself would be sawn in half, according to tradition. Who has believed our message? See, a culture that rejects God rejects God's prophets. And when God's prophets speak, they turn a deaf ear or a blind eye, or they ridicule, or they mock, or they might even kill them. To whom has the Lord revealed his powerful arm? My servant grew up in the Lord's presence like a tender green shoot, like a, like a root in dry ground, speaking of the coming Messiah. There was nothing beautiful or majestic about his appearance, nothing to attract us to him. Indeed, he would just be a carpenter, the son of Mary and Joseph. When he would come back to the city of Nazareth during his ministry journeys, they would say, isn't, <laughs> isn't this Joseph and Mary's son? Isn't that the carpenter's boy? And they dismissed him. A man of sorrows, acquainted with the deepest grief. See, we turned our backs on him and looked the other way. He was despised and we didn't care. Yet it was our weakness he has carried. It was our sorrows that weighed him down. And we thought that his troubles were a punishment from God, a punishment for his own sins. But he was pierced for our rebellion. He was crushed for our sins. He was beaten so that we could be made whole. He was whipped so that we could be healed. All of us like sheep have gone astray. We've left God's paths to follow our own. For we've all sinned and fall short of God's glorious standard, Paul says. None of us stands innocent before God. We've all like sheep gone astray. We've left God's paths to follow our own selfish desires and wants. Yet the Lord laid on him the sins of us, all of us. He was oppressed and treated harshly, yet he never said a word. And as a sheep is silent before the shearers, he did not even open his mouth. Unjustly condemned, he was led away. No one cared that he died without descendants, that his life was cut short in midstream. He was struck down for the rebellion of my people. He had done no wrong, never deceived anyone, but he was buried like a criminal. He was put in a rich man's grave. Jesus would die without descendants, never married, no, never any kids. He would die a criminal's death, actually between two criminals, we are told in the Gospels. And yet he'd done no wrong. And, and Isaiah had the wherewithal to know from God that it was our sins that put him there, not his own. You know he would be put in a, in a tomb that was borrowed? He didn't even have a family tomb. It was an unused tomb that's been freshly hewn out of the rock. And only rich people can hew their own tombs out of the stone. Joseph of Arimathea, 
one of the religious leaders who had become a believer in Jesus as the Messiah, allowed Jesus to have that tomb. But it would only be used for a few days. It was the Lord's good plan to crush him and cause him grief. Yet when his life is made an offering for sin, he will have many descendants. He will enjoy a long life, and the Lord's good plan will prosper in his hands. When he sees all that is accomplished by his anguish, he will be satisfied. And because of his experience, my righteous servant will make it possible for many to be counted righteous, for he will bear all of their sins. I will give him the honors of a victorious soldier because he exposed himself to death. He was counted among the rebels. He bore the sins of many and interceded for rebels. Take and drink all of you, for this is the blood of the covenant poured out for the sins of many. The key point this morning is just this. Jesus bought our peace through his suffering. There's no other way that peace could come into this world except through the suffering of the Messiah. See, I contend if there were other ways for this to happen, God, who knows all ways, would make all ways possible. But since there is only one way, there is only one way conceivably possible, and that was through Christ. For peace to enter this world. Jesus brought peace through his suffering. How did he do that? Let's take a look at these passages really quickly today. Because the Prince of Peace, darkness and despair will not last forever. Do you see the promise in Isaiah 9? Isaiah is laying it on really hard. He's saying, listen, there's coming judgment. God is not going to spare any of us. We will all fall under this judgment. And honestly, it's really sad. What you guys have learned as being the tradition and the norm will no longer be. Many of you will be exiled into various different locations. And many will lose their lives. See, this was the message of Isaiah. But yet, at the very beginning of this chapter, he says, don't worry, darkness will not last forever. Darkness won't last forever. How many of you feel the presence of darkness in our world today? And I see many in our world today who are believers in Christ that are under the weight of this darkness, and it's so crushing you That not only are you desperate, not only are you worried and fearful, you can't see beyond the darkness. But I promise you, in the darkness, a great light will show. This darkness will not go on forever. God has not forgotten his remnant. And who are the remnant? They are the faithful who have not bowed their knees to Baal or Ashtoreth. They are the ones who haven't bowed to the cultural norms of cancel culture. They are the ones who remain strong, firmly planted, that are embodiment of peace themselves. 
that are the embodiment of love and hope wherever they go. And I promise you, if you remain strong, you will be persecuted. What an Easter message that is. But we who remain victorious and strong in spite of the opposition... We have a light within us that is to shine for all to see. The light of the world came into the world to set captives free. He became the prince of peace and through him darkness must flee. So that when you believe in Christ Jesus and are a faithful follower of his, guess what shines through you into dark places? And people who are in the dark do not like the light. Why do you think most crimes happen at nighttime? it's dark and you can hide in the dark now there are crimes that happen in blatant daylight today and woe to those who call evil good and good evil because when it gets so dark in a person's soul that they'll be as despicable in the daylight as they would be in the dark there's a question of us to where the hope truly is in their own life See, we live in a culture where, where in my lifetime, some 40 years at this point, where, where I've watched a slow ebb. I've grown up in a, in a culture just a couple years before I was born that legalized abortion. I've grown up in a culture in my lifetime where prayer was taken out of schools. Where the Pledge of Allegiance, I used to say as a kid, is no longer allowed because it has too much patriotism and it also has God in it. What about separation of church and state? That was to protect the church, ladies and gentlemen, not the, not the government. I'm not trying to get too political here, but honestly... This Resurrection Sunday of 2021. If, if we focus so much on what's happening around us that we forget to focus on the one who's living through us, not only have, have we lost the battle, we ourselves have become a part of the problem. See, the darkness will come, and the darkness is here, but it will not last forever. In the Gospel of John, I want you to hear this, John chapter 1, in the beginning, the Word already existed. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. He existed in the beginning with God, and God created everything through him. Do you know who he's talking about there? He's talking about Christ, the Messiah. It is through Christ, the Messiah, that everything came into being. The creative acts that brought every single thing in creation into being was Christ. You've probably heard me say this before. I'm going to say it again. What John is telling us here, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning, and the, all things were created through him that do exist. Where was Jesus in the very beginning of time? 
He was the word out of the Father's mouth that was bringing all things into existence. How did God create? He spoke, and his spoken word created. And so the word became flesh and dwelled among us. And it says the spirit was hovering over the deep in Genesis chapter 1. So we have the full presence of the glory of God in that space. The word gave life to everything that was created. And his life brought light to everyone, John says. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness can never extinguish it. God sent a man, John the Baptist, to tell about the light so that everyone might believe because of his testimony. John himself was not the light. He was simply a witness to tell about the light. The one who is the true light, who gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. And we would know him as Christ. And in Matthew chapter 5, verses 14 through 6, Jesus' own words, and you heard me say this last week and the week before, he says, you are the light of the world, speaking to his followers, his disciples. You are the light of the world. Like a city on a hilltop cannot be hidden. No one lights a lamp and then puts it under a basket. Instead, a lamp is placed on a stand where it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your good deeds shine out for all to see so that everyone will praise your heavenly Father. Light is always more powerful than darkness. Do you believe that? Good. Light is always more powerful than darkness, and it takes, all it takes for darkness to flee is for light to show up in dark places. Do you hear me? He showed us the truth because he is the truth incarnate. Well, I don't know what truth is, Brandon. What's, somebody could say this, and this is happening here and in our universities. This is being, what is truth? See, Pilate asked Jesus the same question. And before he even gave Jesus an opportunity to give an example or to define what truth is, he walks away. And that's what our culture does. And that's oftentimes what we do as a church. We say, what is truth? And we throw our hands up in disgust and frustration. Why? Because I don't think we really want to know. Because if we know the truth that can set us free, it means we have to change. Amen. You know how many times Isaiah, Jeremiah, Haggai, Hosea, all of the ones prophesied against God's people and they rejected the message? Why? Because it meant they would have to change. Church, we have to change. Amen. Not the message, but the way we live. Church cannot be a once or twice a year or once or twice a month thing. And it's not about going to a place. It's about being the embodiment of God to the world. We are not God, but we are representatives of that kingdom of peace. The sad thing is we tend to become representatives of our workplaces or our families or other things instead of God in those places and around those people. We are called to be light even in our families, in our workplaces, everywhere we go. We are to be cities on a hill, not arrogantly and poplessly knocking people out with a word, but being light and salt. You remember what I said last time, too much salt is unpalatable, right? Not enough salt is bland. 
But the salt we are called to be is flavorful and purifying. Do you add flavor where you go? And I mean the flavor of God. And when you light the space, it doesn't take a huge million candle spotlight. Did you know even the flame from one match can shine a whole lot of light in dark places? The government of the Prince of Peace is characterized by peace. I love this point right here. Listen to this. According to Cornelius Plantinga Jr., the webbing together of God, humans, and all creation and justice, fulfillment, and delight is what the Hebrew prophets called shalom. Again, we call it peace, but it means far more than the mere peace of mind that you can find. In the Bible, shalom means universal flourishing, wholeness, and delight. Shalom, in other words, is the way things ought to be. Have you ever said, this isn't the way it should be? Whether it's with your family, with parenting, with your spouse, maybe your workplace. This isn't the way it should be. Jesus tells us in the Beatitudes in Matthew 5, blessed are the peacemakers. Huh. Did a sermon kick off this whole series this year. It was on being a peacekeeper or a peacemaker. Guess what? We are not to be peacekeepers. We just need to keep the peace. Not to ruffle it. No, that's not what it said. We need to be peacemakers. So everywhere we go, we are to make peace. We are representatives of the kingdom of God, and that kingdom is defined and or characterized by peace. Where you go, do you bring peace? See, as light and salt, when we go, we bring flavor, we bring illumination, but do you also bring peace? Now, as much as it depends on you, Paul says in Romans, you should live at peace with one another. You can't force somebody to live at peace with you. So you're off the hook for how they receive it. But that also doesn't mean you arrogantly go to them and try to make peace in a way that consumes them with your arrogance. See, Shalom, a moment ago, said it is characterized by humility. So we don't go haughty, walking around, trying to force people's hands We just don't do that. That's not the way we are supposed to be. We speak the truth in love even when the truth contradicts other people's beliefs. We unashamedly and unabashedly speak and stand for the truth, which is Christ Jesus, wherever we go. But we do it in humility and never with arrogance, never with pompousness, never with talking down to others. The word translated as government in Isaiah 9, it means rule or dominion. It means power or authority. The rule of God's kingdom ushered in through Christ is characterized by this peace. You know what that means? Let me give you a practical example of this. It means there's no heavy-handedness. In God's kingdom, there is no war or rumors of war. God's kingdom is ruled without fear, sorrow, suspicion, or lies. It's ruled without deceptions, manipulation, coercion, arrogance, or pride. God's kingdom is fearless, full of joy, fully transparent, non-secretive, defined by freedom and humility. 
It's a place where every day, the everyday byproduct of people is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. God's kingdom needs no military or protection because there is no worry or fear of danger. The gates are always open and the weather is always perfect. There is no need to store away food for the winter or stockpile necessities because everything is plentiful in God's kingdom. Why worry for tomorrow? Because tomorrow has enough worries of its own. Can you add a day to your life, Jesus says, by worrying about tomorrow? Should you take necessary precautions? Of course. But when your precautions become the focus is when you lose the focus of your God who is your great supplier. I see many Christians today walking around without a sense of peace because they're worried about the next paycheck or they're worried about this next thing or they're worried about that or they're worried about any number of things that press in on them daily. And it's not that you shouldn't be cognizant of those things, but when those things rule your life, fear rules your life. And when fear rules your life, God does not. When we replace the fears of the world with the fear, holy reverence and fear of God, we live in freedom. You see, where the, where the spirit is, there is freedom. As I mentioned last week, where the sun is, if the sun sets you free, guess what you are? Do you believe that? Do you worry? A couple of you don't. Good. Because if you worry, you become a slave to fear. But if you trust in God, Brandon, I've trusted in God and my life hasn't gone perfect. No, it won't. You were never promised perfection this side of heaven. I wasn't either. In the world, Jesus says, you will have troubles of many kind. Take heart. I've overcome the world. You see, in Jesus' day, they were flogged and whipped. Believers in Christ were hung on crosses. Peter himself was crucified upside down. And he counted it as glory. Paul, the one who wrote most of our New Testament, who had his conversion experience in Acts chapter 9 on the road to Damascus where he was going to go persecute some more Christians. He encounters the risen Lord and it says from that time forward, it was not easy. And you know what Jesus said, the risen Lord, to Ananias who was to go and lay his hands on, on Paul so that he could receive the Holy Spirit? Because Ananias is like, uh, yeah, Paul's got a reputation, and I don't want to go near that guy. He hurts people. And God says, yeah, I know, but I want you to go, because I want to show him how much he's going to have to suffer for me. We, we struggle with, is God really good if, if we suffer? That's a good question. It's one of the ones that pastors get often, and it's one of the ones that keep people away from God altogether. It's a great tool of the enemy to deceive, to say, well, if God allows sorrow and, and, and difficulty to happen in life, then is he really good? Yeah. Yes, he is. You see, what makes him good is that he's overcome that, and so that if we overcome with him and through him, 
We have freedom everlasting in heaven. See, Paul knew this, and he would say, to live is Christ, but to die is gain. And do you know this Paul, who, who was converted to Christianity, did not have an easy way to go. His life didn't get better, it got worse. He got bitten by poisonous snakes, he was shipwrecked, he was put in prison twice. He was, I, this story, I'm going to do a sermon on this, I've never done a sermon on this. He was in this town. And the people got so incensed and angry at the message of Christ that they drug him outside of the city walls and they all picked up stones and they stoned him there, which was what the Jewish people would do for blasphemy if somebody was blaspheming the name of God. And they left him there as dead. Some scholars believe that he may have even died. And so he came to, who knows how long later, how many hours... Mm, I love this. Do you know what Paul does? He gets up, bruised, beaten, bloodied, and dusts himself off. And he walks back in to that same town. We'd say that's glutton for punishment. But can you imagine the people's faces when he stepped back in? Well, gold earned. He's back from the dead. Do you think his message was more effective before or after the stoning? Let's be honest. See, when, when people in this world see believers in Christ suffering for what they believe in, the message becomes more potent. Jesus uses the suffering that we go through to bless others and to draw others unto him. It's not a masochistic way of doing things. Rather, it's God's way of bringing us to a place of purity and wholeness. A church that isn't suffering for the sake of Christ. I question whether or not they're living for the cause of Christ. The Prince of Peace, lastly, could only achieve peace through self-sacrifice. See, Jesus, Jesus didn't say, I need you to go suffer for me. He went and did it. Now, I, I hear that, again, you, you maybe have heard me, this is redundant to, to many of you. I really have a problem with people saying, why do bad things happen to good people? Why do I have a problem with that? Because Jesus himself, there was no one good but the Father. Paul says we've all sinned and we fall short of God's glorious standard. Lest we think we are above reproach, we have to also remember that we ourselves are not perfect, and yet there was one who was. And it's interesting to me that the one who was perfect doesn't condemn but brings hope and life everlasting. See, we, we memorize John 3.16 as kids in the church. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life. But you know what chapter, verse 17 says? God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but rather that the world might be saved through him. And I've always contended, if it's not Jesus' job to condemn in the here and now, then why do we think it's ours? Doesn't mean we don't speak the truth. There's a fine line here between saying, this is what God's word, thus saith the Lord. That's a prophetic utterance. God's word says this, and I'm not going to shy away from the tough things of God's word. 
because I believe that they are truth. But that doesn't mean I'm condemning you. It's, it's my desire as a prophet of God, if you will, to speak forth the truth that can set captives free. When a light is shined into dark places, when the word of God is preached with integrity and truth, it shines light and it shows us where we are off kilter. How much more insidious and sinister would it be to have a pastor stand on a stage like this and skip over the passages that confront sin? It's like having a cure for cancer and saying, well, I don't, I'm afraid I might offend somebody if I say I have a cure for cancer, so I'm just not going to give it. See, we live in a world, honestly, where we got one shot at this. We got one shot at this life. You are not going to do it perfectly, but in Christ, you can do it effectively. In Christ, you can do it because he did it for you. You can't earn your salvation. There's not a thing you can do to save yourself, which is why he died on the cross as the perfect spotless lamb, the sacrifice to take away the sins of the world. See, the writer of Hebrews tells us that. He reminds us that Jesus is the kind of high priest that we need because he is holy and blameless, unstained by sin. None of us can say that. He is set apart from the sinners and has been given the highest place of honor in heaven. That at the right hand of the Father, Jesus advocates for you and me. Unlike those other high priests in the world, Hebrews tells us, he does not need to offer sacrifices every day. Did you know that? No more animal, why, do you, why is there no more animal sacrifice? We can say well, it's because the temple was destroyed in 70 AD, so there's no real place to offer at the, the brazen altar and those kind of things. No, it's, it's because Jesus was the once and for all sacrifice. There was no need for any other. But Jesus did this once for all when he offered himself as a sacrifice for people's sins. See, the law appointed priests who were limited by human weakness, but after the law was given, God appointed his son, capital S, with an oath, and his son has been made the perfect high priest forever. And he is the perfect sacrifice. He goes on to explain in Hebrews chapter 9, under the old system, the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of young cows would cleanse people's bodies from ceremonial impurity. Just think of how much more the blood of Christ, which you partook of this morning through a cup, will purify your consciences from sinful deeds so that we can worship the living God. For by the power of the eternal spirit, Christ offered himself to God as a perfect sacrifice for our sins. That's why he is the one who mediates a new covenant between God and the people. Why did Jesus not come to abolish the, the law? Because he came to fulfill it perfectly. We couldn't do it. That's why there were animal sacrifices. But because he fulfilled it perfectly, he abolished that system and says, now through this sacrifice, you have salvation through my body and my blood. Partake of my body and blood. In John chapter 6, he says that to them, unless you eat my body and drink my blood, you can have no part of me. And it says that day, tons of people left because they found it too much 
He wasn't talking about cannibalism. He was talking about truly partaking of who he is and being intimately connected to him. Listen to this, and I'm going to close. The servant did not submit to an affliction through pathetic resignation, but as a bold choice to participate with God in an act aimed at breaking the stranglehold that sin had maintained for countless ages over the human family. Unless you think that Jesus was some pathetic, pitiful guy who just got caught at the wrong place at the wrong time, he actually laid himself down for this. He could have evaded and avoided this if he wanted to. As a matter of fact, he could have said, you know what, it's not worth it. He prayed in the garden the night he would be arrested. Lord, if it be your will, let this cup pass from me, but not my will, your will be done. You know what he, he's, you know, is it really worth it? I mean, this is going to be really hard. See, this cup of judgment that redemption comes through is going to be hard, but I'll do it if you still want me to. And God said, yes. And so he gets up with a resolve, and he was led away quietly, and before his accusers, he didn't speak a word. Why? Because he knew it wasn't going to work. You ever stood before somebody you knew to argue with them would be in vain? The Apostle Paul in his letter to the Corinthians writes this, For God made Christ who never sinned to be the offering for our sins so that we could be made right with God through Christ. He became sin who knew no sin that we might become the righteousness of God. And we, too many of us live in bondage because we don't believe that. Or we say we believe it, we give it lip service, but we don't live it. And we make a mockery of the cross when we continue to carry the burden on our backs for our own salvation. See, he goes on to say, as God's partners, we beg you not to accept this marvelous gift of God's kindness and then ignore it. For God says at just the right time, I heard you. On the day of salvation, I helped you. Indeed, the right time is now. Today is the day of salvation. As our worship team comes forward to close this out. There's an illustration, I actually showed a visual illustration to it. It's on Right Now Media. And uh, it's, it's, it's a story by missionary Don Richardson, who served for many years among the primitive tribes of Papua New Guinea. And he wrote a book called The Peace Child. Have you ever heard of it? Phenomenal book if you've not read it. Phenomenal story if you've not heard it. Listen to this small little segment of the story, the synopsis, if you will. See, Richardson tells the story of two tribes in Papua New Guinea who maintained a blood feud between themselves for several generations. Each generation fought and they nursed their wounds only to find, uh, fight and kill again, maiming more and more of their own tribes. After years of the struggle between these two tribes, they realized that they were going to have to stop fighting or nothing would be left of their own people. They were going to pretty much cause their own tribes to go extinct by killing each other. But what could they do to end the years of warring between these two tribes? What could they do to bring peace? I love what they did. This is true story. Listen to what they did. The chiefs of these two tribes came together and they brought with them a child they called the peace child. This child was a newborn son of one of the opposing chiefs, which they adopted into their own tribes as their own. Do you see this? It would be 
like giving your child away to the other tribe who you'd warred against for generations. The only way to make peace between these two tribes was them to give their newborn children to each other. This child was the son of one of the opposing chiefs. As long as that child lived, the two chiefs promised to cease their fighting so that all could live. This was their peace treaty. It wasn't written on paper, but written rather in the life of newborns. Richardson had finally found a perfect picture of God's love for us in sending his son, the Prince of Peace, to die for us. See, Jesus came into the world, Isaiah chapter 9, as our peace child. But it wouldn't be except through his death and resurrection that we would truly learn of the significance of the peace that he brought as the Prince of Peace. I know some of you, I may only get one shot at this. But that Prince of Peace loves you. If he didn't, he wouldn't have bore the cross. I mean, how many of you would do that? How many of you would bear a cross for somebody who hated you? And yet he did it. How many of you would bear a cross for someone who spit in your face while you were on your way to your execution? How many of you would do that? And see, yet he did it. And he knew that many would scoff and reject and persecute him along the way. They would curse his name. Even on their deathbeds, as the one thief on the cross on the other side said, oh yeah, if you're truly the Messiah, why don't you get all of us down from here? And yet the other one said, oh, don't curse him. Don't curse him. He's done nothing wrong, but we are justly hanging here on the cross for our own offenses. Oh Jesus, when you come into your kingdom today, will you remember me? And Jesus, in his few dying breaths, said, Yes, today you will be with me in paradise. Today you will experience my shalom. The Prince of Peace, who gave himself for us, brings us peace in the here and now and expects us to be peacemakers wherever we go. Not promising that it's going to be easy along the way, but promising that at the consummation of the second coming, when we leave this world, we will experience that govern of peace, the government of peace that will have no end. Our altars are open as they always are. If you felt this message in any way, form, or fashion connect with you, you feel the conviction of the Holy Spirit on your life, don't leave this place without reckoning with God. Father, we ask you into this place, and we welcome you as we did earlier, as not only the Prince of Peace and the Everlasting Father, but the one who takes away the sin of the world. And it's through that action that we can truly have peace from all that weighs us down. Help us to be light and salt. And help us through humility to receive the shalom you give so that we can express and give that shalom to others. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thanks for joining us this week. Check back next week as we dig deeper and go further in our understanding of God's word. Make sure to visit us on our website, www.northmaincog.org, where you can learn more about us. If you found value in today's message, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes, or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would be helpful too. 
Donating to the ongoing ministry of North Main is easy. Just go to our website and click on the Give tab at the top of the screen. Thanks for listening. We look forward to you joining us again next week.